Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Welcome back to the latest edition of the Audible presented by Trader Joe's. This is a special edition. This is our uh, national title preview show, and we are joined by a big guest. He's a tough get, but we were able to wrangle him. It is Ari Wasserman, who I'm excited that I will be seeing this weekend before Washington plays Michigan. We have a lot to get to. Ari, thanks for joining us today. It feels so good that the ban has been lifted, guys. Uh, I feel free. Uh, it's a shame that it's coming on the Ari Wasserman shame tour, uh, but you know, I'll take any appearance on the Audible I can get. Thanks for having me on. I mean, I feel like this is the second time we've had you since. Like, this is the second time having you on and listening to you say the ban, the ban that was never a ban, has been lifted. But Ari, for it's those not a who... ban until you say it isn't. Like, I, <laughs> <laughs> you, you have to be the one. Yeah, no, I, I, there's no, there's no van. Uh, some, some of our listeners have the feeling that somewhere beneath, we can only just, Aria, can I only see your face and the top of your shirt? Is there, or is there not a little placard on your work desk that just says boss? You're talking to Stu, right? I'll take that as a yes. <laughs> no, uh, I mean, for people who, I don't know how you wouldn't be familiar with Ari's work, but uh, he is the host of our Until Saturday or co-host of our Until Saturday podcast, as well as the Stars Matter podcast. And Stars Matter is why we wanted to have you on, Ari. Obviously, this Michigan-Washington matchup is very unique uh, in that it is two teams that don't necessarily hit that magic threshold of four and five star recruits, which has kind of been your calling card. So, you know, how are you feeling right now? This, if you would have asked me four or five months ago, would be impossible. I did uh, ask. I would you, have said on this very show. And what did I say? I'm sure I said it was impossible. Um, you know, and I think Bruce gets a lot of credit because he wrote a story about Michigan at the beginning of the year that you know kind of painted the picture of what actually occurred here, which was Michigan did a very good job of developing. They have a ton of draft picks um, and maybe more draft picks in the teams that they were playing, despite the fact that they weren't made up the same way through the recruiting ranks that you would see from an Alabama, Georgia, and Ohio State. But, you know, last year we saw this happen on one side of the bracket with uh, with TCU making it, and then they met their, un their timely demise when they played a super team. So Washington making it, though certainly impressive, um, kind of mirrors a little bit of the same type of route, I think, that TCU made in, in the sense that they didn't have to play a super team to arrive here. The thing that really blew up everything that I stood for and stand for is that I would have thought that it would be impossible based on roster makeup for Michigan to beat Ohio State and Alabama in two out of three games. Um, I, I saw Michigan beat Ohio State the last two years coming into the year and now three in a row, but 
having the roster makeup from a physical standpoint based on those recruiting rankings, we have never seen a run like this in the history of the playoff field and not for the last 20 years. So um, I am certainly stunned by it, you know, watching it happen and play out. And I'm kind of at the point now where I can no longer say it's impossible or act like teams that are very good at the beginning of the year can't transcend and beat the teams that we just assume have those, have those athletes that just cannot be beaten. But on the other hand, I'm kind of in this weird intersection, guys, between um, is this year the perfect storm for Michigan? They have all these seniors, they have all these draft picks, and they they existed in a year where Georgia, Ohio State, and Alabama were all replacing quarterbacks and were not peak versions of themselves. Or is this the first season of a trend that's going to happen regularly moving forward in the NIL transfer world, in the expanded playoff world, where we're going to see teams that rank in the 12, 14, 16, all the way down to 26 range in the 247 sport composite make it to the national championship game? And, And that, to me, I think is really interesting. I'm surprised, Ari, that, you know, I read your column that you wrote about this. And most of it was about Michigan and how shocked you were that Michigan could mm-hmm. make it this far. To me, isn't Washington a more extreme example of this? Michigan is, you know, Bud Elliott does that blue chip ratio where in mm-hmm. his theory is you have to have at least 50%. And Michigan is over 50%, albeit not by much. Washington's not at that threshold. And to me, Washington also defies a couple perceptions that were widely held for a while, which is, first of all, all the best players on the West Coast want to leave the West Coast you know, two five stars from the state of Washington went to Ohio State, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just a couple years ago. Um, and then I noticed you said Washington didn't have to beat a super team. But Texas is a isn't Texas considered a stars matter team? I mean, they're they, they are they have the perfect quarterback. It. They are close to it. See, that th- this is the distinction that's interesting. And listen, beating Texas is certainly impressive. There's no question about it. But in order to be qualified as a super team, you have to reach a certain threshold of five-star and top 100 players in Texas, though close um, at the number six spot in the 2023 composite rankings has uh, not reached the threshold that you would expect from the super teams, which is Alabama, Georgia, and Ohio State in terms of the top 100 players and the eight in the five-star prospects they've had. Texas has signed some really nice classes, but like Alabama literally signed nine five-star prospects in one class last year, and Texas's entire team has nine. So they, they are up there, and they're certainly one of the more talented teams in college football, but there is a certain level that you get to when it comes to just the wealth of that talent that um, Alabama and Georgia specifically, and, and to the same extent Ohio State, but not as much, possess. So, you know, for me, the reason why I focused on Michigan isn't because what Washington has done isn't impressive or isn't a bigger outlier. Um, it's because the path that Washington has taken to this point doesn't mirror the two teams that Ohio State had to beat that meet that threshold on the way. So, my, you know, Washington, no, go ahead, Bruce. No, I was just saying, like, my frustration with a little of this, you know, premise, I get where it comes from. I think it's that the hanging to it as such an absolute. And look, mm-hmm. Ari, you're not the only one who does it. Stu has done it, you know, a lot too. He's just not been as ad- as outspoken about it. But I think, you know, your margin for error tends to be better because that is where the numbers, you know, will, you know, do say. I think it's the absolutes. Well, there were, there were six or they're just outside that margin. I mean, look, anybody who watched that game would tell you the three-star quarterback is way better than the most hyped quarterback recruit sure. 
recruiting you know era and that's Quinn Ewers. And so I think it's it's that part of it where you look and say, all right, you know, anybody who was watching that game the other day, and I'm not saying, you know, Alabama could have won that game if they don't fumble the ball. I mean, Michigan definitely made their mistakes along the way to give it, you know, give them an opportunity too. But that that on paper, that is like the most talented team in the country. There's no way you would like if you had like NFL personnel people evaluate what this roster actually is, not what people thought it might be coming out of mm -hmm. high school. Which, you know, look, I think the guys, it's not just 247, it's it's rivals, it's, you know, ESPN does some of it, on three certainly does it. It's hard to evaluate high school kids. It's I mean, yeah. I did this in meat market. It's like it's way harder to evaluate high school kids than it is, you know, football players and as basketball players. And, you know, like people kind of nitpick it, but like Kenneth Grant after the game, you had a bunch of people on Michigan who were really fired up because they have, and I'll get to this more in a, in a couple of minutes, but, you know, felt like they've been disrespected. Yeah, they were the favorites, but they've definitely been disrespected as players. And he referenced like, we're, you know, the no star defense, Michael, Michael Barrett said it. And the truth of that is while the stars are, you know, yeah, there's Will Johnson and JJ McCarthy who, you know, Will Johnson was a five-star JJ McCarthy was on some, you know, some fives and some fours. But this, the nucleus of that defense, Chris mm -hmm. Jenkins came in as a three-star. Mikey Sanders still, who's the best player on the defense, three-star. Michael Barrett, three-star. And then Kenneth Grant, when he committed there, I don't know how he wasn't how he was a three-star. Not you know, you look at him; he's three hundred and forty-five pounds. You know, Harbaugh told me he ran in the hot, like a four-nine-eight when he got there. He's like insanely athletic, and he's emerged as a star. But when he committed to them, he was a three-star and was not, you know, it's like, I think the, it's the evaluation. It's what I'm getting at is it's hard to have it as like the be all end all to hang everything on when the process, now I'm not saying them people, but when the process is so, is such a crapshoot on this. I mean, I, I go back to the best recruiting class on this team. And I went back and looked at it, um, you know, right after your column, they, Washington has five classes of this team. And their average ranking is just below 30. Mm -hmm. It's 29. And the best class I had was Chris Peterson's last class. And it's the nucleus of the offensive line, including probably, you know, one of the best offensive tackles in the country. Both, you know, both guards. Um, you have their best defensive player, Braylon Trice, you know, a bunch of other starters. And then the three guys who were also in that class that probably made it a top 20 class together was Puka Nakua, who hasn't been on that team for a long time, but obviously he's tearing up the NFL. Wayatu Latu, who got medical and ended up being the best defensive player in the country over at UCLA. And then Trent McDuffie, who's already gone and went to, you know, started as a, started and won a Super Bowl for the Chiefs. It's all of it to me is just like, it's a little bit, I, I get why it's good fodder, but I think to, to hang on the absolutes that it can't happen to me was always really puzzling. So there is a 30 minute podcast to unpack with all what you just said. So I'm going to try my best to answer the reason why I felt the way that I did. Um, I am a hundred percent with you guys, uh, especially you, Bruce, in the notion that a person's individual rating is a hard thing to nail down completely. 
I think it's easier for five-star prospects because there are certain players in this country in the high school level that are just physically built in a way that you can't miss them. They, they do things physically that other people just can't and will never be able to do. But from an entire roster spot, this is all a math equation. If you have 85 scholarship players on a team and the average player on that team was rated as a top 100 player like they were on Alabama this year, if half of those players end up stinking and half of them end up being really good, you have 45 top 100 players hitting. So the more really great players that you bring in, um, the bigger wide margin of error you have on the hit ratio that you need to bring in. So that is the reason why over the but years. I, I saw that, but it's the really good part. It's like what you, I, I, I've always said this, and Stu and I've had little conversations about this when it relates to like five-star quarterbacks. Like to me, if you're going to be truly a five-star guy, you were talking about truly elite players, not guys who are pretty good or good starters. I mean, and to me, that's where, like, you need those guys. Like, what was interesting, and I, I wouldn't pick a game this way, but the more I heard from, like, you know, a lot of these coaches, and I would start to go back on it a little bit because I felt differently than a lot of the coaches um, who I talked to felt about Michigan as a team. And when I looked at the Alabama matchup, you know, if you'd say position by position, never mind, like, put the star rankings to the side. If I said to you, okay, Blake Corm and Donovan Edwards compared to the Alabama running back room, I think you'd be crazy to say the Alabama running back room. I think if you included tight ends and receivers together, I think you'd be, I think it, I think you'd take Michigan over what Alabama has. Now, maybe Alabama has good, more impressive younger players, but in terms of what they have now, I would not. Mm -hmm. You know, Michigan. Well, that's the most puzzling thing here, Bruce, and not to interrupt you, but on paper, because we talk a lot about the transfer portal and NIL and all this stuff being a neutralizing factor, and it will be and is, but on paper, Alabama has the second most talented team in the history of tracking this stuff. But, but you're defining talent by just what 247 and, and on three say. To me, that's actually not talent. That's That's a cheap way of, again, and I'm not faulting them, but I think that's kind of got bastardized to use the term talent as what somebody was evaluated when they were 17 years old. But the thing that is interesting about that is because they do do a pretty good job, but even if it is a crapshoot, the fact that Alabama had holes at its on its roster, you could even make the quarterback position be one of them. The offensive line clearly had a major hole in the middle there. Um, the running back room is good, but not great. And the receivers, you know, don't, uh, really play the way that you would expect from an Alabama receiver group. You know, we're talking about an Alabama team that has recruited or has a has a roster that has recruited better than anybody else ever has in the modern era of recruiting. And yet there were four or five holes on their roster this year that literally just never existed on previous national championship teams. Like the 2020 Alabama team and the 2019 LSU team and some of those Clemson teams that won the national championship. Like Alabama this year was not that. And I think it's a weird dynamic to recruit the way that they have recruited and put together a roster that statistically on paper from those high school ranks is better and deeper than every other class that has ever been assembled into a team and come away with it spitting out an offense that has four holes out of the five position groups. And that's the, the reason why recruiting has been so good of a metric to fall onto is even if you find yourself in a hole, 
you have so many good players on your team. It's so easy to plug them. Even when people get injured or suspended or leave early, you always had somebody to plug in. So the fact that Alabama could assemble a roster this talented from the high school ranks and be unable to do that, I think is a very interesting dynamic for the Nick Saban era um, and for the entire thing. Like, and I understand and agree with hundred percent of what you're saying, like draft picks is probably a better metric for talent than, than rankings coming in. I'm with you on that. The problem with that is, is that draft picks and high rated players correlate much better on a hit rate perspective than they, they do like this Michigan team is like the anomaly. This isn't, this isn't like the norm. Um, and it might be the norm going forward, but we have 20 years of data correlating um, great recruiting results and a wealth of talent for teams winning the national championship it, before this year, it happened year over year, game after game, title after title. Um, so to me, what the question is, why did Alabama find itself in this position? Did they lose players in the portal that they would have plugged in? Like it was the Brockermeyer twin that, that transferred to TCU, the center that they could have put in there to snap the ball correctly that they didn't have this year? Or is the NIL situation making it harder for them to pick and choose which five stars and top 100 players they want instead of just going to get the highest rated players they can find? Like it's a very highly complex issue. And I'm like, it's so crazy because it feels like we're arguing, but I agree with everything that you're saying. And if um, I could weigh in here, I, look, you guys are both, you're just coming at it. It's not that one of you is right and one of you is wrong or that like, it's just a matter of when, when Ari talks about recruiting and frankly, I'm more of this way too. We talk about it on the macro level where just as you said earlier, it's just like basic one, you know, one plus one equals two. The more of these guys you sign, the better chance you're going to have to win at a high level. It is also true on the micro level, Bruce, that a lot of the guys that are highest ranked turn out to be busts. And a lot of the guys that are lower ranked turn out to be better than expected. And but we're also too in an era where you can get a Heisman trophy finalist in the transfer portal to play the most important position. And yeah. I mean, like I that think, wasn't happening in 2015. Well, 16, and I think that's Washington in a nutshell, right? Like you took a talented team, but not like Alabama talented team. And you added a guy who in Penix who has turned into whatever he used to be ranked or whatever he was at Indiana. At the end of the day, right now, to me, he's like the Joe Burrow of the 2023 football and season. And pairing him up with a with a receiver room that are, are all going to be full of pro bowlers. Yeah, you know, so like, that can, oh, that can overshadow a lot of other stuff, right? So, Ari, Alabama, I think it's not that this team it is not surprising to me what happened with this team. What's much, much more surprising is that Nick Saban went like 15 years without having a miss of a recruiting class. Like that's not normal. At some point you're going to assign a class that has no matter how many, like look at all the schools, look at, you know, USC over the years, Miami, Texas, how many times these teams have signed, you know, top five classes and they just were a miss, right? Like, I mean, they, old Alabama teams used yeah. to have, TJ Yeldon, uh, Derek Henry, and uh, one other NFL running back, Alvin Kamara, in the same room. They right. used to have receiver That's rooms not normal. That, had, that had Henry Ruggs and Devontae Smith and Jalen Waddell all playing. Like those were, That's what a super team is supposed to look like. So even though the super teams exist on paper, 
they have not existed on the field this year, which thus has opened the door for teams that are built very well the way that Michigan is from a developmental standpoint and all the draft picks that they have to beat them. But like, I still don't think that any team in college football this year could go beat 2020 Bama right now. I don't think they would beat 2019 LSU. I think that this is partial circumstance and partial evolution in the sport. And I don't know if this is the COVID year and 44 seniors and in the story, you know, Manny Navarro did the research on this, but you know, Michigan's too deep had 3000 more snaps of experience in Alabama's team this year. That also has to account for something. So is this a flash in the pan or is this how we expect to analyze the sport moving forward? And instead of picking out of the five teams that can win a national championship off of that list at the beginning of the year, um, yeah, I think the biggest change that I have to make personally, and I think the thing that probably frustrated Bruce the most was how simplistic and absolute I was about it. And this year taught me that you can't be as simplistic and, and absolute about it. You have to, I'm still going to think that the teams with the best players are going to win the most, but I can't just be like, well, only these four teams can make it. And that's it. Because if yeah, I would have done that this year, I would have lost. Yes. I, it was the dismissive part of it to me. That was like, that was way too much of an oversimplification just because mm-hmm. and that's again, fair. I, I go back to my time of actually being around the recruiting process and inside of it. And it's such a hard thing to get right because there's so much more that goes into it. Like to me, the, the, the things that are the hardest things for the people who do the star rankings is they don't have often the same information or the depths of it that the actual coaches have. I'm not saying the coaches, coaches get it wrong too. Sometimes it's like, look, the NFL gets it wrong and they have way more information, you know, at that point, it's just, there's a lot like the mental parts of this and some of the things Like I had a long conversation with Chris Peterson about what they look for and why, and what actually matters and what can, what can give you a false read on guys. And I think that's the part that's hard, you know, and, um, it's it's a really interesting story unto itself of how this team that like where was the disconnect like I didn't think about it in this context until something you said earlier on the podcast today Ari was the disconnect between this Alabama team being on paper so highly regarded as recruits and yet it being one of the least talented teams Nick Saban's actually had. You know, right. that, that is really interesting. It's not to say, you know, like there was Saban hit on it, hits on an incredibly high number of blue chip players because the like USC has missed on a ton of five. Some of the, some of the biggest busts they've had have been in the last like six or seven years of five star guys who just have not lived up to the hype or have actually had off field issues that people maybe didn't factor into what they were doing in the evaluation when they came in. Um, you know, I, you know, Alabama certainly had five-star guys, you know, Al- Antonio Alfonso, um, you know, uh, Iabi Anoma, who bounced around, who's like talented, but just, you know, he's at four schools. I mean, they've had, those guys were like the top-ranked player in the country when they were coming out. And so there's certainly been some of those guys, and there's a margin for error that obviously is greater when you have, that kind of at those kinds of athletes um in your program and you're hoping that when these guys they will get the culture you know of okay what does it take to be an elite 
player, not just what, you know, I, I think it's also hard because some of what's going on now, um, and I thought our colleagues, uh, Manny Navarro and Grace Rayner did a, did an interesting story where they're, where they're recruiting survey and they're, you can get a window into the psyche of, of the high school recruits in that survey that they did this week where, you know, they're, they're talking about like, basically trolling fan bases and everything else. And I think it's, it's, it's probably not hard for some of these top recruits to get lost or lose themselves in this day and age of social media, much less now with NIL, you know, people coming around them and all that. Um, I do want to spin forward a question for you guys both. And that's this, um, off the field, the Michigan players, especially were letting off, a, you know, they were celebrating and they were letting off a ton of steam. And there was, you know, Chris Jenkins, who's one of the stars of that team and definitely a leader, was talking about like, now what? Like in terms of everybody, no one's given them credit. Now, it's not to say, you know, the Vegas folks had them as the favorite. But at the same point, you know, there's just a lot of dismissive stuff about, whether it's Jim Harbaugh or the signal stealing investigation was hanging over them for a while. You know, they just beat Alabama though, and they're going to play for the national title from, from here. Like, what do we think of this team as its accomplishments in terms of like, how uh, Ari, how will you view this team if it does win the national title? And, and I know you, you have a unique kind of perspective because you used to cover Ohio State, you covered Ohio State recruiting, and it probably blows your mind that they could have lost three in a row to this Michigan team. The last game that I covered, I was with Andy Staples in Ann Arbor, it was 2019. And I think that game was uh, a lot to a little. I can't remember the score, but it was a blowout in Ann Arbor. And Andy and I were breaking down the um, – the numbers after the game and before the game of the talent discrepancy in the recruiting rankings between the two. And I wrote after a column that said this rivalry is dead. Like I legitimately thought that until Michigan recruits at a higher level, if Ohio state's going to be signing top three classes every year and Michigan isn't that there's no way that this could ever flip. So as we sit here today, looking at the three in a row, like I, and dumbfounded by how quickly it happened, first of all. Um, and second of all, couldn't believe that it even did. Um, so how do I view this Michigan team? I think this Michigan team is an example and the prime example of um, eval evaluation, fit, uh, coaching, um, togetherness, and all the cliches that used to make me roll my eyes. Um, the embodiment of what teams can do when you have people pulling the strings that know how to build a football team the right way. Um, and I even tweeted before the Alabama game was over that even if Michigan would have lost, because as you know, overtime games could go either way that they had all, by playing with Alabama the way that they did. And I thought that they physically beat them the entire game. Like even if they would have ended up losing, I thought Michigan looked like the better team the entire game that they already accomplished something that I thought was impossible. So if Michigan wins this national championship and I'm going to pick them to do so, um, they will be the embodiment of my change as a person, which is don't be overly simplistic and really break down, take the extra step. Um, but also um, the value of 
analyzing and finding the Mason Grahams and the other 12 examples in their starting lineup that weren't recruited the same way that a Alabama player was, but gelled together to, to fit a common goal and to, to do it all. So I have a tremendous amount of respect for Jim Harbaugh and his staff and this team for what they've been able to accomplish. And they've certainly altered my perspective about a topic I've been so vehemently passionate about the last, you know, five, 10 years. I think that, um, you know, obviously people that listen to this podcast or read our coach rankings list every year know that I was about as big a Harbaugh skeptic as there was in 2019, uh, 2020, because at that point he'd been there long enough and the expectation that he just hadn't delivered on the expectations that of when he was hired, that they were going to, he was going to bring them back to glory and they were going to obviously, you know, at least even out the Ohio state rivalry. And to that point it hadn't happened. And now with the benefit of hindsight, I think what we saw was that that 2020 COVID season kind of became a reboot for them. And for Ohio state, that same exact season when they had Justin Fields and all those were like, they went to the national championship game. Like it's kind of been going in the wrong direction since. Mm -hmm. And I know, you know, there's the debate of like, does Ryan day, get too much flack given his record or does he deserve the flack? Cause of, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, I think the difference between those two programs over the last few years is Harbaugh developed an identity of that program and it is, and it took, and even with staff changes and, you know, player changes, like, you know, exactly what you're going to get for Michigan football over these past three seasons. Whereas I think with Ryan day, He's still trying to figure out, like, what what kind of staff do I want? What's our approach to the transfer portal? It, it's kind of all over the map a little bit. Obviously, stars matter. They're still loaded with talent for the most part, but they just have these cracks now where you're like, like this year's Ohio State team to me didn't look like an Ohio State team. And they still won 11 games and all the credit for that. But it, it seemed like he didn't know exactly. He wanted to be more physical. He wanted to prove Lou Holtz wrong. But he also has Marvin Harrison, so obviously you want to get him the ball. Um, that's what's going on there. I think, Bruce, back to your question from, I don't know, five minutes ago at this point. I think what you're asking is, with the sign stealing, right, how do we view this Michigan team in this season? And I addressed that in the mailbag where, you know, there are people who are going to – So how do you Mich not – yeah. So yeah, I mean, Michigan could win this game 100 to nothing, and people will still say their season was tainted, they cheated, you know, and I get that. But I think – the way it worked out in the end is that the scheme got uncovered and Connor Stallions resigned at a point in the season where they still had all their biggest games ahead of them. And so they have had a chance to prove definitively against Penn State, against Ohio State, and certainly against Alabama that they didn't need that to win, to beat these really good teams. And so if they finish it off by, you know, be, frankly, becoming the first team all season to shut down the Washington offense um and win the national championship like i don't know how anybody with two eyes could say it was anything but legit you can still be um you know you can still be mad or offended or you know whatever you want to be it was, you know the ncaa should hammer them all that stuff but like they'd be an absolutely deserving and legitimate national champion to have gone through that gauntlet and won all those games i think you could actually make the case guys that this will go down um, as maybe the one of the worst losses in Ohio State's history of the rivalry. Because if you look at where they were on the field at the end of that game, um, you know, they were 40 yards away from potentially winning it, and Marvin Harrison was open and Kyle McCord was hitting through a pick. I wonder if that game ended with Ohio State scoring at the end there, which really over the course of a four-quarter game, 
you know, isn't that big of a difference, uh, how much different we would be viewing the Michigan sign stealing scandal. But I'm a hundred percent with, with Stu that like they won all their big games after this came out. So, you know, and I don't think they would have lost to anybody else had they not done it. I think that, um, going above and, and beyond the rules is, you know, a tough break for, you know, how people view you, but I don't view this Michigan football team as winning the national championship as a result of whatever occurred there. Um, and I think that the majority of fans, uh, you know, some will still talk their garbage on Twitter and not give them the credit they deserve, but they beat Alabama and Ohio state, uh, and Penn state even without the benefit of whatever they were doing there, presumably. And those were the only three games on their schedule really that they could have ever lost in a million years anyway. So, you know, it's uh, it was a crazy story and certainly one that I think is not over yet, but it doesn't alter my perspective of what they did on the field on Monday or what they did at the end of November either. Ari, just to uh, circle back to something you said about that COVID year. So on the field after the game, I, I talked to Trevor Keegan, who's you know one of their starting offensive linemen, and he said this, I think that COVID year was the best thing for us. Those were dark days. If you're not winning in college football, it ain't fun. The guys really took the initiative and looked themselves in the mirror and really changed this thing. It's special to see the journey that we've been on. So sometimes the bottoms could be the best thing that could happen uh, for a program. And that's, you know, like it's that year they tapped out. It looked like like they were they didn't they weren't playing hard like that. Remember that Wisconsin game during the covid year? Like, I thought that was the end of the Jim Harbaugh era at that point because it looked like uh, the team just quit, you know, and then the Ohio State game got canceled and they went into the offseason. And then what came out of that is the greatest three-year run maybe in, in the history of Michigan football. It's kind of lost in history Crazy. now, but, like, yeah. they, they w- it was not a certainty Harbaugh would be back, right? They ended up giving yeah. him a contract with a pay cut that he had to earn back, which he obviously did. So, um but people thought he was getting fired at that time. Don't you yeah, remember? exactly. Like, it's crazy. Both both programs, frankly, just completely turned themselves around. Well, Washington was four and eight two years ago, and they're yeah. now in the national title game. So, um, and can I share the stat that you jumped in on, Bruce? Before you let me go, there have been three teams. Guy. We're hanging on to you. We're 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 bringing you in. Uh, three teams in the history of the uh, recruiting rankings, I think dating back to two thousand two, have won a national championship without having signed a top five class in any of the previous four years. And those three teams are the 2010 Auburn team, the 2016 Clemson team, and the 2018 Clemson team. And if you see the common denominators there, uh, one had Cam Newton, one had Deshaun Watson, and one had Trevor Lawrence. And no matter who wins the national championship game on Monday, they will become the fourth and all three of the previous examples who have already done it signed top 10 classes in the previous four years. The only team of the two coming into this game that signed at least one top 10 class in the previous four years was Michigan. Washington had not done that at all. So um, statistically speaking, this is going to be an interesting thing to see. And if Washington pulls it off, we'll be in a class of its own in terms of teams that have made it this far in the CFP era, in the BCS era, even without having the recruiting results to match it. And, you know, I wonder if teams like this Washington team or the Florida State team that could have been had they not had any injuries. When you look at that team, their entire group of best players are transfers. Johnny Wilson, Jared Verse, Keon Coleman, Jordan Travis, even Trey Benson's a transfer, right? Like they, their entire team, the crux of their team was a transfer. 
So if you look at the 247 sport composite rankings for Florida State, you'll see an ugly picture that doesn't necessarily tell the truth of what that team was before they got left out. So um, I'm very interested to go to the game. I'm super excited to see you, Bruce. I'm going to get my paws on you down there. And uh, I appreciate you guys letting me talk about this. Uh, I, I think I, I held my own. I don't know. Are you going to just let me if you get seated next to Bruce in the press box, Ari, are you going to do to him what you did to me? Yes. Uh, at the Pac-12 title game and just pester there's something him about with you, highly invasive questions. You have you have a sign around your neck at all times that says pester me. That's a steward <laughs> thing. Like Bruce doesn't have that same that same. Like, are you I saying I'm too I'm too approachable? Yeah, yeah. You're a very approachable man, Stewie, and, and I love stand, uh, being near you. So every year, Ari, Stu, and I do our top 25 coaching rankings. It's going to be look wildly different this year. Yeah. Uh, if Michigan wins the national title on Monday, would you guys have Jim Harbaugh ahead of Dabo Sweeney at this point? Yes, without question. Yeah, I mean. I don't, I don't think it's even, I don't even think it's a debate. Um, the thing that is interesting about that, and I listen to your guys' podcast every year and I read the story is that it's a interesting list because it just depends on how you come at it. Like, I know that you guys don't necessarily weight the same things. Um, and that makes the discussion interesting. And I think that Dabo Sweeney was a genius um, in the sense that he is the first coach and maybe the only coach in the modern era of college football, which I define as since 2000 to take a solid program and turn it into one of the elite of the elites. And not just a one year run, but, for a five-year period, Clemson was an elite-level team with a national championship aspiration um, legitimately for five consecutive years. And in this era of recruiting, that's a very difficult thing to do. And they did it uh, without signing the Alabama-Georgia megaclasses. They recruited well. They didn't do it. So I've always had a lot of respect for what Dabo Sweeney built um, at Clemson. Um, I have a really hard time with him now because I feel like the game has passed him by and he's not doing anything to catch up to it. Um, and that to me is a very difficult thing because if you're ranking it, there's no possible way that you can't say he's the best program builder of the last 25 years. But on the other hand, the direction of Clemson and it's like, you know, the no transfer thing, they took no transfers. Like they didn't fix the problem. Um, the direction he's headed would be a really hard thing for me to, um, really wrap my arms around. Now, Harbaugh, I think is kind of similar. Um, they have beaten Ohio State three years in a row, have won the Big Ten three years in a row during a time in which it felt like it was impossible. And he's done it in a very similar way to Dabo in terms of finding gems and building the roster with guys that, you know, like Isaiah Simmons that weren't highly rated, that turned out to be, you know, great players uh, in college and first round draft picks. And he's doing it in an ongoing fashion in a way that, you know, they have used a transfer portal. And it feels like he's on ahead of the curve when it comes to building the program. Like I feel like they're passing each other in the night and one's heading one direction and one head heading the other. That said, Dabo has two national championships. So do you wait the past or do you wait the present more? And I always wait the present more, but the thing is the question is going to be moot Bruce, because it's the ranking of the top college football coaches. And by the time we do that list, I, Fairly That's certain he will, now, he will not be a uh, college football coach. Yeah. Well, I hope I hope he is because I think it's good for the sport. I think it's highly entertaining. And, you know, anytime you have a new program that isn't just Georgia and Alabama and Ohio State, you know, taking up the national championship airwaves, I think it's a positive thing. So, um, you know, that to me is, is interesting. But if I were a part of that, I think I would weight trajectory pretty high up because, you know, I know you, Bruce, don't you give – 
James Franklin a ton of credit for what he did at Vanderbilt, and certainly he deserves that. But, you know, as we're talking about what they're doing now and where they've been the last five years, I'd have a hard time using that pretty heavily in order to put him at the top of my list. Though I certainly understand what you think building that program is like next to impossible, and he did it. And um, it's just a highly complex question. It's certainly one of the most fun uh, podcast stories that we run in the offseason at The Athletic. All right. Well, stay tuned for that. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll keep talking in person this weekend, Bruce. Okay. And download uh, the Until Saturday podcast if you haven't already, and you'll get well, how many days a week is that, Ari? It's like seven days a week during the off season, um, and five or six during the or seven days a week during the regular season, and five or six, I believe, during the off season. Though I have a call today to figure out the the cadence moving forward. All right, get that wherever you get this podcast. Thanks, Ari, and have fun this weekend. Thanks so much, I appreciate it, and I can't wait to see you, Bruce. Me too, Ari. Thanks for doing this. All right, Bruce, let's do some mailbag. We have some great mailbag questions this week, and one of them is about something you just brought up, Dabu Swinney, and this is from Daniel Tubin or Tubin in Fairfax, Virginia. Happy New Year's, guys. Big fan of the podcast. Let me start by saying I'm not a Clemson fan, but I believe you two on this show have been overly critical of Dabo. He just had yet another nine-win season, very close to 11, and Clemson is loaded with young talent on defense. We praise coaches like Chris Kleiman and Mike Gundy, rightfully so, but look at Dabo's last four years as a failure. Isn't it possible that he's a better coach doing this without the portal? Isn't this just being a victim of his success? Is there something about his personality you might not like? Um, I, yeah. So, yeah, I, we, I, and I was brought up this question with Ari to lead into it. Uh we think he's by far one of the three or four best coaches in college football. The thing that Dan, it was Daniel, right? Daniel just said, which I want to, you know, kind of pull back on a little bit is I think Kirk Ferentz is one of the, you know, 15 or 20 best coaches in the country too. He's had three 10 win seasons in the last five years. And one of those years was a, you know, six and two COVID year that he didn't get 10. And that's at a, a over an incredibly long stretch of, of success, but, um, you know, the one, the one kind of snag with him is, you know, the offense was glaringly, um, an obvious problem and it took them a while to, to try to address it uh, moving on from Bryant Ferentz. In this case, it's the portal is the obvious thing that, you know, you get the it's probably a noble position that Dabo is taking saying, hey, we're going to we're going to give every opportunity to the guys who committed to us and we're committed to them in that sense. But at the same time, I think it's been to the detriment of the program going at another level that it needs to to compete for national titles, not just compete for, you know, ACC titles. And, you know, if, if they don't do it. They're, you know, they're not going to be, I think it's still be a playoff team because now we're going to have 12 playoff teams, but I think it's going to, the margin of error is going to be really hard and it, you know, for them to win, I don't think it's impossible, but I think it's going to be a much tougher ask if they're just not engaged the way other people are with the portal. I mean, he is a victim of his own success to some extent in that he raised the bar so much higher than whatever was at Clemson. If, if so, the last three seasons, 10 and three, number 14 in the country, 11 and three with an ACC championship, 13th in the country. This year, nine and four, and I assume they'll finish like low top 25. 
you know, if if that was their three year run at the beginning of his tenure, they might probably they probably give him a big raise, right? Like that's that was really good for Clemson at the time. But it's like it's like a it's like a you know, um I don't know, it'd be like a, like I guess a student who like you've seen them get A pluses before. Now they're starting to get B minuses. It's like, hey, B minus isn't the end of the world, but could you we know you're capable of better. Like we want to see your best again. And 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 you're right. Like a lot of it is just stubbornness. And um I know he has tried to get a couple guys in the portal so far this year and not succeeded. Uh it'll be interesting to see if that changes. I would also just say, like, they did end the season on a five-game winning streak and beat Notre Dame and beat Kentucky in the bowl game. So, like, things are trending a little bit upward there. But, yeah, this was their worst season. They went four and four in the ACC. They hadn't done – they hadn't won – he hadn't won fewer than six games in the ACC since 2010, and they went four and four. So, I don't – I think the criticism this year in particular was absolutely warranted. But but um, But you're also right in that – we've just kind of like recast him based on his own success. All right, so let's get to the next question. And this one is from Eric Bronstein. Stu and Bruce, as a lifelong Buckeye fan, am I wrong for being completely out on Ryan Day? I am not saying he should be fired, but I do, don't do see Ohio State winning a national title under his watch. Every year since 2019, the offense has slowly regressed and he is the de facto offense coordinator and refuses to give up play calling. Even in 2022 with CJ Stroud, the offense was very out of sorts all season because everyone looks at it because of the performance against Georgia, which Ohio State lost, but most of the fan base celebrates as a moral victory. He can't beat Michigan. He struggles against good teams, and recruiting rankings are propped up by five-star receivers. I don't feel like he is much different than James Franklin. Am I off base? That's uh, you're going James Franklin there, huh? Uh, I mean, he Ryan Day's beaten him. However, you know what? Every year of his tenure, I mean, like I just said during our discussion with Ari, like it's definitely very slowly trending in the wrong direction. And I think this year in particular made me wonder, like, what does Ryan Day want Ohio State football to be? Uh, I think at first it seemed like okay, their identity is they're going to be. The, the, you know, really explosive offensive team with these great running backs and receivers and quarterbacks um, kind of picking up, frankly, where Urban Meyer left off a little bit. And, you know, we're seeing a regression there. Now, the flip side of it is they got really good on defense this year after a couple off years. And I don't see any reason why that can't continue with Jim Knowles there. Um, yes, you're, you're premature to throw it. I think he's premature to just like throw in the towel on Ryan Day and assume – he can never win a national championship there. But I do, I think up until this year, I thought your people are being ridiculous to criticize him at all. Look at his record. And I do think we saw cracks this year. Yeah. The, the part to me that's interesting is like his numbers as a you know success rate, 56 and eight and 39 and three in the, in big 10 play. And all three losses came in the last three years, obviously to the arch rival. Those are the games that matter most. Um, uh, you know, the bar is incredibly high for him there. You know, we'll see, you know, it looks like he's going to get Will Howard. That would be the quarterback going forward from K-State. Um, you know, they, the part that I think is most interesting to me is Ryan Day feels like he is 
you know, seems like he is super stressed out with everything. You know, you mentioned, you know, I think Ari mentioned the Lou Holtz comments after the Notre Dame game. Um, you know, it's, it's, if you're the Ohio state football coach, I, and, and you're in this kind of like, it's an interesting, I don't want to call it like a no man's land, but it's like, it truly is national title or bust. And he, you know, if, if he, I would be surprised they're not a playoff team because there's 12 playoff teams and they're still, you know, again, Oregon and Washington are coming in there as is USC and UCLA, but like, I don't know. Michigan's probably going to, we think, take a step back because they're going to lose like 20 draftable players and probably Jim Harbaugh, we think, you know, so um, Penn State, you know, it's like it's just spinning its wheels. Yeah, they have to take a massive step forward on offense with Andy Kotal, Nikki coming in to run the offense if they're going to really be a national title contender. They can be a they can be a uh, a playoff team, but it's just that that other level. But it's here's Ryan Day. If you're sitting there going, you know, where like what's the next thing if it's not Ohio State? If you're him, you know, like. I don't, his name isn't, you know, he's worked in the NFL and he is a good offensive mind. I just don't know if there's, you know, the NFL likes the big shiny objects too, or whoever the hot name is right now, that wouldn't be him. Um, you know, and if I just don't think anything's going to be more attractive to him than being in Ohio state at right now as a head coach, it's, it's a, it's an interesting time. I, I would not be surprised if he made some coaching, you know, staff moves, but I don't think it'd be a massive overhaul. Like right now, Brian Kelly um, has, is making a massive coaching staff overhaul. He basically fired his whole defense and he's got to replace the offensive coordinator who left. Yeah. It's, you know, it's an interesting play. Like they're similar in this regard. They're both at places, probably uh, Brian Kelly even more so, where it's absolutely national title or bust. And if you don't win it, you know, and Ryan Day's obviously been close there at Ohio State, but it's just like, what do you do? You know, and just I, I suspect Brian Kelly can manage the bet can is probably better is probably more comfortable with tuning out some of the crazy. Whereas I don't think that I don't think Ryan Day Ryan Day seems to be wearing a little of that more. All right, there's been a lot of talk, you know, over the course of bowl season about the future of the bowls with all the opt-outs and whatnot. Interesting idea here from Chad Justice. Uh, Bruce and Stu, as we move to the 12-team playoff and the national champion, there's obvious concern over the future of the bowl games. What if they basically created a secondary tournament similar to what the NIT tournament has been for basketball and used some of the non-CFP playoff bowls to host either or all portion of those games? You could give auto bids to the conference champs that don't make the playoffs and a few at-large bids. They'll probably go to power schools ranging from 10-2 and two to 8-4. and four. Um, I've thought of that as a possibility eventually, like if, if, if all focus is going to the 12 team playoff and we actually have for the first time, a you know, multi-week playoff in college football, should there not just be like a consolation playoff for some of the other teams. But just before we came on here, Bruce, the TV ratings for the new year's day bowls came out. And again, for all the, like, there's just such a disconnect between, the dialogue around bowl games of this every it's broken and it's got no future and da 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 da, da um, because of the opt outs and whatnot. 
6.8 million people watched the Citrus Bowl, highest in four years. 4.6 million people watched the uh, Quest Bowl, highest in six years. There's been a lot of headlines like that. People watch these things. So I don't know that there is a need to like dramatically shake things up. Now we'll see if the 12 team playoff, you know, marginalizes those more and, and you don't see those kind of numbers anymore. Um, but as of now, like, I don't think there's the crisis that some people are making it out to be. Yeah. And I, again, I, I think what you said at the end is probably the most important part, which is like, we got to see how this will be a dramatically different, um, tone to everything with a 12 team playoff as opposed to a four team playoff. And I think one of the things that they, they being the powers who run the sport, whether it's the, the commissioners or the TV networks, especially ESPN is to create more dialogue about relevance for a bigger audience. And that's what they're trying to do. And I suspect they will accomplish that on that front. So, you know, we'll see what, what, how different the dynamic is you know, probably two or three years from now, because you're going to get outliers. I mean, I wouldn't hang our heads on everything on like, because I, I think, you know, the ratings were really good on that. I suspect they weren't great for, you know, for the Oregon um, Liberty. They game. were awful for the Oregon Liberty game. Yeah. But so next it, year, those teams would be in the playoff. Yeah. So, I mean, that's why it's it's a little tricky to to balance that. Um, let's close on this. Stu and Bruce love the audible. And saying, so thanks for feeding my college football addiction twice weekly. Thank you, Rich. Uh, the Washington Huskies are my adopted hometown team and all season have given me strong LSU 2019 vibes. Excellent QB, unparalleled set of receivers, and bend but don't break defense. I would also argue really solid offensive line too. Um, and a cutting edge offense. Um, so I guess my question is, should I be in Houston on Monday for a Huskies a la Burrow Chase Jefferson or watch on TV to avoid a heartbreaking loss in person. Thanks as always. Okay, Stu, time to make some predictions. What should Rich do and how do you feel? Bruce, I keep picking against Washington and they keep proving me wrong. So I'm done picking against Washington. Um, that game the other night, you know, I've been watching Michael Penix for however many years and especially most of this season. And this was his best performance yet. And that was against a Texas defense. I, you know, retroactively, people are saying, oh, it wasn't a great Texas pass defense. Well, they one thing they were able to do all season is get pressure on the quarterback. They got none on Washington. That offensive line is insane. What other pressure and, that uh, Penix was able, there was probably three times I talked to one of the Texas coaches two days ago, and they did get to him, you know, three times. They couldn't get him down. Um, and I think that's that's probably a that is a credit to how athletic he is which I don't think because he's not running the football, people don't give him enough credit for that. But yes, their offense line is really, really good. Michigan is even better uh, as a pass rush. Um, also, obviously, there's reason to be concerned. I know that um, Kalen DeBoer said that Dylan Johnson should be ready to go, but it, what if he's not you know, himself in that game? Because I do think he's been very important down the stretch as well. But you know, he brought up the 2019 comparison. I've brought it up. You know, you were around that 2019 LSU team a lot. And I remember starting around the SEC championship game, you know, you were in bed and you kept saying, like, these guys think they're invincible. Like, they have the swagger they had. Like, they don't, you know, you would say, like, they don't, nothing phases them. And I feel like that's the case with Washington. How else do they keep winning all these close games week after week after week? We were watching the, you know, end of the Sugar Bowl, 
And when they put one second back on the clock, I thought for sure, that's it. Texas is winning because you can't expect Washington to just keep defending these passes over and over again. And sure enough, pass breakup, they win the game. So I pick the Huskies 31-28, which means he should go to the game. Yeah. Um, yeah, is, what is remarkable, just even, not even just this year, since Kalen DeBoer, the head coach there, they're 11 and 1, 11 and 1 in games decided by a touchdown or less. That is, you know, it's kind of almost unthinkable to be that good in close games, but they have a belief and it comes from the head coach and they believe in each other. And, but these are the two, and I've said this, you know, a little bit this week, these are the two mentally toughest teams in college football. Maybe it's not a coincidence that they're playing for the national title. No doubt. I mean, the close games that Washington's won, all the stuff on and off the field that the Michigan players have battled through, um, you know, much respect to those players because of that. You know, I could see it going either way. I picked Michigan in the beginning of the year or before the start of the season. I picked them to beat Alabama the other day. I think they will find a way to win this game. I, I, one of the things that that you know came up and David Ubbin and I did our our coaching confidential. One of the things that came up a little bit on the Washington side was, you know, Texas was averaging like six yards a carry. You know, they ran for almost two hundred yards. They did have two fumbles though, and that kind of cost them. But it's just like if they just keep running the ball, yeah, they, you know, they probably win that game. They didn't. You know, I think, you know, and one of the other comments was Michigan's defense is like Texas, but with better defensive backs. I still think they will not win a lot of the 50-50 balls that Adunze and Polk and McMillan win. But I think they are they are better than the Texas secondary. And ultimately, I think they will end up uh, they will end up finishing it and go 15-0. Michigan definitely has like a team of destiny feel about them. So I don't. That's so I feel good picking against them. Um, like just seems like they're on a mission. And to this point, they've accomplished exactly what they set out to do. But that's the beauty of two 14 and 0 teams playing in the national championship is um, somebody's going to fulfill that and somebody's not. And it's, I mean, frankly, you know, un unfortunately in hindsight, I decided a while ago, I was going to not travel to, to the, to the game this year. Um, and now it's like, one of the more um, I've been, I'm more excited for this matchup itself than I have been for a while, but I'm told the game is televised and I'll be able to see it. And I'm looking forward to it. And I'm sure you're going to look forward to seeing it. Um, press box level. We will come back uh, with a, with an episode right after the game uh, that you'll be able to hear on Tuesday morning. So we will see you then. <laughs>